We're looking this morning at the subject, faith in God's say-so. And if you look at your bulletin outline, we, we just follow right along in the outline, and you, you have room there to put your notes if you want. And the first point in it is, but you promised. But you promised. We have all said these words to people who had to break their word to us due to unforeseen or unresolvable impediments that arose in their lives for which they had no power to change. And they said, but you promised. We all place a lot of weight on promises, don't we? Think of the marriage vows. We men, repeating after the minister. Do you promise to love her, to keep her, to provide for her, to remain faithful to her alone so long as you both shall live. And the men are expected to answer, I do. And a similar promise is pledged by the bride to her bridegroom. Signed business contracts, corporate mergers, mortgages, decisions made within families, agreements between friends, political, international treaties, All these and more are based on promise, real or implied. And when papers are signed, the promises take on a legal binding in terms of their nature with penalties, financial or otherwise, that kick in if there's a breach of the promise. And even in these agreements which are not legally binding, it's not unusual to hear a family member lament the breaking of such with the words, but, 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 but you promised. You promised. That said, there is the other side of the coin, which is that a promise takes on a similar, not quite the same, but a similar attributes of an oath, of which the writer of Hebrews states, men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. We sometimes That's Hebrews 6, verse 16. We sometimes um, say that when we're talking to somebody and and they make a pledge that we're going to do such and such and the person will say, do you promise? You see, it's almost like we're saying, do you swear that you're going to keep what you're saying to me? That you're going to keep your word? Do you promise? How significant then to read when God made his promise to Abraham Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. Hebrews 6, verse 13. God took an oath that he would keep the promises he had made to Abraham. As human beings, we sometimes hear people add a reinforcement, reinforcement to what they are saying, and they say something like this, you can take that to the bank. Meaning, my word to you is as secure and true as any deposit that you might have in your bank account. You can trust my word. You can rest any decision you make in this matter on what I have told you. Nonetheless, (laughs) men with good intentions still break their word, as noted, for things which arise that... They had not accounted for and for which they have no resolution. But the all-knowing and all-powerful God of the universe 
of whom the Bible says, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, namely a promise and an oath, he who, we who have fled to take hold of that hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Hebrews 6, verse 17 and 18. God made a promise and he took an oath. Now the writer here, the writer of Hebrews, is telling us three things about the character of God when dealing with his people. Number one, God does not change the nature of his purposes when dealing with men. As noted before, God orchestrates all events, though there's never a time when he has to change his plans. Who's going to go up against God and win? So if God makes a promise about something, he's going to keep the promise. There are no unforeseen events. There are no events that are above the power of God. So he orchestrates all those events that are going to fall in place so that the promise is kept. That's the first thing. You don't alter God's purposes. Number two, God's word carries with it the weight of both a promise and an oath. Do you promise? God promises. Do you swear? God takes an oath. And then the third thing, and this is very important, the writer says it is impossible for God to lie intentionally or otherwise, because he is truth personified. Jesus said, I am the truth, John 14, verse 6. And as Jesus testified of God the Father in his high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 17, he said, Father, your word is truth. If you said it, it's true. Well, that brings us then to the second point, namely that Abraham believed God without any history or experience with God. I want you to think about this. When we, we human beings, when we act on a person's promise, it's because we have a history with them. They have told us things before that have proven true time and time again. So we trust them to be telling us the truth here and now. And if we do not have a history with them, say like in a business contract or something like that, we may still enter into agreement with them, but usually only if they are willing to sign their name to a formal document. How unique then, how unusual to read of Abraham's compliance with the command of God, verse 1 of our text, go to the land I will show you, verse 4, so Abram left as the Lord had told him. You see the two connected? First the command, and then Abraham's compliance. And I pointed out last week, that was likely a shocker for Abram to be confronted with the God who speaks as opposed to the dumb idols, which were part and parcel of his pagan religion. So, yes, his ears perked up when God appeared to him and spoke a command. 
But I want you to think about this. Even so, God made a lot of promises to Abram. Look in your text, verse 2 and following, all these verses. This God with whom Abraham had no history. How could he commit to such a God with whom he had no experience? Maybe this new God was a liar and not to be trusted. Think about that. Or maybe this new God meant well, but was as impotent to keep his word as the dead and lifeless idols that Abraham and Sarai were used to worshiping. Remember, promises are only as good as the person making them. But Abraham and Sarai did not know God. God just comes on the scene. He speaks. Abraham hears. He obeys. It can be said, and this is what we're talking about, and it needs to be said, that when talking about faith, all people, listen, all people have faith. No one operates in our world without faith. When your friend says to you, okay, okay, I want you to meet me downtown tomorrow at the Mexican restaurant at 1230, and we will have lunch together. By the way, there's an excellent Mexican restaurant <laughs> downtown Lapeer. <laughs> okay. When they say that to us, you do not consume the rest of the day calling that person every three hours to ask, are you sure you're going to meet me at the Mexican restaurant tomorrow? Are you sure you're going to meet me tomorrow at the restaurant? Are you sure you're going to meet me at the restaurant tomorrow? You don't do that. No. Unless something hinders you, you will not call that person again. You will simply show up at the appointed time unless they call and cancel. You'll be there. You trust them to show up because they have earned your trust. When you head out to work in the morning, you have faith that when you show up at work, the building will be unlocked. It'll be open to receive you. There will be heat on the building, electricity to run the lights, the machinery, or the computer. And you trust that there won't be any pink slip in your locker saying that you have been fired. Again, how long have you worked for this employer? Five years? Ten years? More? They have always treated you right, so you do not question these things every Monday morning when you begin a new work week. You trust from experience that barring any catastrophe, you will continue to work for them and be compensated for it. That's faith. That's faith in action. When you have a special family outing planned that is dependent on good weather, you trust the weather report, which predicts sunny skies and 80 degrees temperatures. Right? Now those days are over for us for a while. <laughs> and even if the meteorologist gets the forecast wrong, you do not say, I will never trust that liar again. <laughs> no. You chalk it up to, well, no one's perfect, or weather reporting is not quite an exact science, or everyone makes mistakes, mistakes, and you will be checking the weather report the next morning from the same report. 
Faith is a natural human response to life in all of life. Because you have learned to trust others through your experience. This faith in others is so strong that if someone were to accuse your friend, let's say, of slandering you behind your back or of doing something to betray you, you would protest. You would say, that is not true. My friend would never say that or do that against me. We would speak so confidently because we have experienced unflinching loyalty and integrity from the friend. Now I'm saying to you this morning that all people have this kind of faith. But what can we say about Abraham acting on the command from an unknown, untested, unproven God with whom he has no knowledge and no experience? And what is more, the command of this God requires an absolute faith because of its nature. It is not a probable faith. Even a stranger might be trusted to meet you downtown for lunch. Business people do that all the time, don't they? There's a high probability that the stranger will show up. No, rather, this command from God is radical, it is demanding, and it is unprecedented. Pack up all your belongings because you're not coming back home. Leave your friends, leave your family, leave your business associates, and go to a land that I will show you and I will confirm you to you when you get there. No map, no GPS. No written directions. Just start walking and you'll know it when you see it. And you'll see it when I show it to you. Think about that, folks. Who lives with this kind of faith? This is not normal. This faith is extreme. This is supernatural faith. This is faith in the unseen, the unknown. It is inexperienced faith, unlearned faith, untaught faith. It is faith with no history. Faith with no foundation upon which to build a relationship. Some have called it blind faith. But if it is blind, all of us should pray for such blindness. John reminds us, however, that such faith is not an irrational faith. It's not against reason. It is not, as some have suggested, well, a leap into the dark. No, John anchors it to known faith of which I have been speaking this morning, and then he makes the connection with unknown faith in the most vital of all faith exercises, faith in God to save sinners. Here's the way he says it, and it's wonderful. He says, we accept 
man's testimony. We accept man's testimony. That is faith in the words of men. We accept men's testimony. But God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his son. Anyone who believes in the son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. 1 John 5, verse 9 through 11. You, you get John's very sharp point here. Shall we believe men and treat God as a liar? This is the logic of it all. But that said, still we must conclude that logic does not win out in sinful men. Sinners will always prefer lies over logic and falsehood over truth because they have a spiritual enemy of their souls, again, often repudiated and denied, but Jesus believed in the devil. And he testified of the devil saying this, Jesus' words, he, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning, Adam and Eve, think about that, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John 8, verse 44. Paul tells us how Satan uses his lying, murdering power he writes, the God of this age, talking about Satan, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. And since this is so, how could Abraham, indeed how could anyone have saving faith in a God they do not know and over whose spiritual eyes Satan has cast blinders. Think about that. Paul continues in that same text. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. He's referring to God as creator. Back in Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 when God said, let there be light. For God who had said, let light shine out of darkness, the creator made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Give us? Did I read that right? Why is such faith in God a gift from God? Paul goes on to explain, we have this treasure in jars of clay, that is, in our unworthy, sinful self. Why? He goes on, to show 
to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6 and 7. Bottom line, saving faith is not the natural faith that we all utilize every day of our lives. No, it's supernatural, gifted faith to whomever God calls. Hebrews 3, verse 7 and 8 puts it this way. So, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Jesus tells us Abraham's response. Yes, Jesus tells us Abraham's response when God called him and promised him the Savior as coming through his offspring. It's in John 8 and verse 56. He's speaking to the people of the day and Jesus says, Your father, Abraham, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. of faith to apprehend and hang on tightly to the word of God. So God commanded, go, leave, get out. And verse 4 says, so Abraham left as God had told him. That's supernatural faith. No one does that. No one in their right mind does that with natural faith. But with supernatural faith, they get a walking to the promised land. Now, secondly, and you'll notice in your bulletin outline, there was a progression in Abraham's faith in God. This, is, this doesn't come all full-blown. There's, there's, there's room for growth. We read this morning excerpts from the By Faith chapter, Hebrews 11. And in this chapter, the author rehearses the history of some of the faithful people of Old Testament times, Abel, Enoch, Noah, and so on. But he devotes, he devotes the lion's share of his expose to Abraham, listing four distinct faith milestones in this man's life. And each of these milestones is also a step upward in trust, in faith, in God from the previous step. Thus demonstrating that we can grow in our faith in God, just as we mature physically and mentally. Let's look at some of these. First stepping stone is that saving faith obeys God's directives. Look at verse 8 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. Hebrews 11, verse 8. There it is distinctly stated, he obeyed and went. Most of us, I think, have experienced at least some of this. You know, the idea of leaving home. When Don and I were married, seven months later, we packed our meager belongings into a little... Uh, five-foot square utility uh, trailer, and we headed off for John Brown University in Arkansas. 
24-hour drive, 1,155 miles away from our hometown in Pennsylvania. Not only were we new to marriage, but we were new to being without our family support system. Our parents did not pay for our trip. They did not pay for our school tuition. They did not pay for our room and board. We were, as they say, on our own. We had to secure our own off-campus housing, our own employment, our own food, our own everything. We knew no one at John Brown, no friends, no fellow students, no church family. We felt very much alone in a new and strange environment where people ate something called grits at every meal and they drank raw, unpasteurized milk that you could buy in the grocery store. You may have experienced something similar. I remember Jim Steele telling me of his and Linda's move from West Virginia, from a West Virginia coal mining town to Michigan to get a job in the auto industry. It was a smart economic move, I am sure, but also one in which they had to leave family and friends to relocate miles and miles away in a new state to begin a new job. So this is common for people. There is a measure of faith in all of this, but there's nothing supernatural about it. Don and I had to find a school which would have Northeast educational endorsement for Donna so that upon graduation, she could teach back in Pennsylvania, where we were from. And I needed a school that was good in theology. So we did our homework, praying as we searched, looking for Christian schools that would meet these two criteria, and we found John Brown University in Arkansas. Very little of this applies to Abraham and Sarah. They had a calling from an unknown God, yet a living God, to a place Abraham would later receive as an inheritance. A place kept secret in the mind of God and not disclosed till they had actually put sandals on the ground and were moving. Reminds me of some of the ads that I have answered on Craigslist when inquiring about used furniture. I would ask for the address. I kid you not. I would ask for the address, and the seller would say, call me when you are on the road, and I will give you the address. Yeah. Well, what was going on? Well, they were being cautious about their location, number one. And secondly, they wanted the assurance that I was truly going to show up to take a look at the furniture that they had for sale so they wouldn't waste their time and mine. But of Abraham, what do we read? By faith, Abraham, when God called to a place that he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Hebrews 11, verse 8. I have had people tell me, well, you know, I believe in God. Yet their whole life is one of disobedience, the simplest of God's directives. James warns us that there is an intellectual assent or belief in God, which nonetheless is damning in effect, 
He writes it this way to his people. And you can see the sarcasm in the way he writes this. Here it is. You believe that there's one God. Good. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. His point is, yeah, but they're still demons. He goes on. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. James 2, verse 19 and following. First stepping stone of saving faith is that it is an obedient faith. It is a working faith. It is an act of faith. You can't just say, well, I believe in God, and then do nothing that God commands you to do. That's not faith at all. Second stepping stone. Saving faith lives as a nomad on earth looking for something better. This is a progression. This is a step upward. Hebrews 11 verse 9. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob who were heirs with him of the same promise. Hebrews 11, verse 9. Do you see this? <laughs> He's in the promised land. It says so. He makes it to the promised land to which God directed him to go. But when he gets there, he lives like a stranger in a foreign country, living in tents as his son Jacob and his grandson after him who were heirs of the same promise. The man was wealthy. Read the, read the Old Testament text. He was wealthy. He could have built a very substantial mansion for himself overlooking the beautiful Jordan Valley. His wealth could have bought him some pretty powerful political connections with the movers and shakers of Canaan. But he preferred to keep his distance. And to live as a stranger in a foreign country. I'm saying, what foreign country? This is his country, gifted to him by God. What more could Abram want? What's he waiting for? Hebrews 11 verse 10 states his thinking. For he was looking. For the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. You know what that says? That says Abraham saw the promised land of Canaan as not the promised land. Wow. 
No, Canaan was a very poor substitute for the promised land. Next week we're going to see how he scoped out the land from every direction of the compass when he arrived there. So he certainly knew the vastness of what was promised to him. Do you know the truth of this little chorus? This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasure is laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Saving faith puts down shallow roots in this world because the real promised land has to do with the city that has a permanent foundation whose architect and builder is God. And in curiosity we ask, what's this city like? And the Bible answers, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2 verse, uh, verse 9. And men protest, but I want to know now before I get there. And God answers, when you get there, you will know. Saving faith looks to God's future for something better than this world. Are you living that way? Shallow roots? Looking for the city whose architect and builder is God. Third stepping stone. Saving faith trusts God to do the impossible. By faith, Abraham, even though... He was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because, because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Hebrews 11, verse 11 and 12. When God first promised that he would make Abraham into a great nation, Abraham was 75 years old. Verse 4 of our text, 75 years old. Well, no, not many men are having children at age 75. But even if this were possible with Abram, Sarah, his wife, was barren. Let us not forget that. Chapter 11, verse 30 of Genesis. She was barren. As the years rolled on, both Abraham and Sarai became impatient. And so Sarah proposed that Abraham marry Hagar, her maidservant, as a concubine, that is, as a, a lesser wife, one who would be able to bear children and provide Abraham with the heir that he needed to keep his family line gone. Matthew 16, verse, or Genesis 16, verse 3, indicates that this occurred. Ten years after Abraham and Sarah had relocated in Canaan. So, add ten years to his time when he left. He was 75 years old. So, at 85 years old, Abraham married Hagar. And as a result, Hagar gave birth to Ishmael, from whom all of the Arab nations have come. And they revere Abraham along with all Christians. But as Ishmael, who is that child of Hagar, 
persecuted Isaac in the Old Testament story, so the Arabs have hated the Christian descendants of Abraham to this day. It's still going on. But, and here's the important part, Ishmael was not the promised child because God's promise was that Sarah would bear Abraham a son, not her handmaid. You say, well, if God had just energized Sarah's womb earlier, this travesty would not have happened. What was God waiting for? Well, Paul, commenting on the next decade in Abraham's life with him now 99 years of age and Sarah 90 years old, he writes this. Against all hope, Abraham in, in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Romans 4, verses 18 through 22. And if you want the original account, you can go to Genesis 18 and read all about it. All right, I got to ask, why did God delay his promise to Abraham that he with Sarah would have a son? We're now what, 30 years into the, from the day of the promise? Why the delay? I believe that God was waiting for Abraham's procreative powers to die. To die. Sarah had been barren for more than 30 years of marriage, but at age 85, you'll remember, Abraham was still viral enough to father Ishmael with Hagar. At 85! then there was no way, no way God was going to allow any shred of possibility that Sarah's son was the result of Abraham's procreative powers. Uh-uh. Now, promised child means miracle child. Promised child means child conceived by faith in God Promised child means a child of God's grace, of God's doing. And saving faith trusts God to do the impossible. So God waited until it was impossible to say, well, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Uh -uh. Paul says, he knew his body was dead. He knew Sarah's womb was dead. That's when God stepped in and kept his promise. And then lastly, in his, now you see his progression. Obedient, belief in God and the impossible. 
He's moving up the ladder. Saving faith is sacrificial faith. What if God asks you to do something that's really, it's going to really tear at your heartstrings? Let me read it for you. Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, hmm, a test. We all love tests, right? By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be counted or reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Hebrews 11, 17 and following. You know the story. It's in Genesis 22. God came to Abraham and instructed him, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I'm going to tell you about. Genesis 22, verse 2. (laughs) We read that and we scratch our head. Abraham willingly complied. He went early the next morning along with Isaac and he took wood for the burnt offering and he took a knife. And as he raised his arm, knife in hand, ready to sacrifice Isaac as God had commanded, the angel of the Lord stopped him saying, Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your from me, your son, your only son. Genesis 22, verse 12. I have to ask, how could Abraham even think of doing such a thing? Hebrews eleven nineteen tells us what he was thinking. By inspiration, the writer of Hebrews tells us. Abraham reasoned. Here's, his, here's what he's thinking. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. What's that mean? It means Abraham is thinking, I'm going to do this. I'm going to sacrifice my son. Knife in hand, I'm going to carry it out. But I know this. After I carry it out, God has the power to raise my dead son. Because he promised that my offspring would come as the stars of the sky, as the sand of the seashore, through this boy, Isaac. Brethren, that's supernatural faith. And there's so much here, but let me just say that on ancient Mount Moriah is where the city of Jerusalem is built. And just outside that city of Jerusalem is a hill called Golgotha the place of the skull. And it is the place where God sacrificed his one and only son, Jesus, on a wooden cross. Only this time, there was no stay of execution. There was no voice from heaven saying, Halt! There was no governor's pardon. 
God the Father's love is sacrificial, willing to sacrifice his son. And the son's faith in the Father is also sacrificial. We read, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken away from me. Yet, yet, not as I will, but as you will. Matthew 26, verse 39. Brethren, as people of faith, we are called upon to live sacrificially, to think and live and provide for our families with the awareness at all times that this world is transient. It's here today, gone tomorrow, and only what we do for Christ will last. We may shortchange ourselves because of sacrificial living in this life. But that's okay. Because in the kingdom of God to come, we will rule and reign as princes and prince under God's rule in his promised land. Where's your faith? You have this supernatural faith? Are you trusting in God to this degree? Oh, Lord, may you give us this faith. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for the example of Abraham and Sarah. How marvelous it is to see that when you gift men with faith, this supernatural kind of faith, they trust you in, yeah, what we would say, unbelievable ways. The world doesn't trust you like this. The world's faith doesn't even come close to this. Our faith in human beings, in work, in schedules, in government, in all the things where we exercise faith, it's not like this. But it will take the gift of God's faith to help us to reach out our hands and trust you. Give us that faith, Lord. And Abraham and Sarah set the example that it's possible for sinful men and women to come to know God with this kind of saving faith. Now, we'll never apprehend God by our intellect alone, nor with the kind of natural faith that men have in other people. No. This is supernatural because it's so demanding. It's an obedient faith. It's a faith that lives life in a transient way. It's a faith that believes in the impossible. And it's a faith that is sacrificial. If God tells me to do it, I'm going to do it. And I'll trust him. Lord, who lives like that? Hopefully, we, your people, live like that. And where we do not, forgive us, Lord, and cleanse us for our doubts and fears. And encourage us and strengthen us by your grace. Amen.